Okay, so today we're going to have a like an open discussion uh, that Yoha has initiated. Yoha has been wanting to talk about magic uh, on the podcast, and perhaps in particular the difference between magical and rational explanations of reality. Uh, in, in connection with this, although we're not going to have a, a reading, um, Yoha did ask me to have a look at an excerpt from uh, Carlos Castaneda's third book about uh, Don Juan, Journey to Ixtlan. Um, some years ago, I read the first two books, and um, Ixtlan is the third and Yoha has always said that that's the most interesting of the book, so I got about halfway through it and then stopped. So I hadn't ever got to the uh, the key chapters that um, that Yoha really wanted me to read. But I have I have skimmed them for this discussion, so hopefully that will provide me with some of the uh, the relevant reference points. Anyway, Yoha, do you want to start by saying exactly yeah, well, what, what motivates you? To relevant read? reference points, yeah, it will definitely provide you with that. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically the idea in Castaneda, I mean, what I like in Castaneda, especially in the third book, is the, you know, the philosophy of, uh, like, other ways of seeing reality. So it's not so much about, you know, the reality being different. It's more about that we are indoctrinated in one way of viewing reality while there are, you know, we being, you know, whatever, current civilization civilization. Mm. Uh, that while there are other ways of seeing reality, and in fact, you know, many cultures would probably see reality in a different way, and you would think that, you know, say, whatever, animals who aren't indoctrinated into seeing reality in one particular way through the language, they will see it in a different way. But, I mean, like, animals aside, the point being is that, uh, well, I mean, what kind of a Castaneda says, and what I think is... Uh, true in some way is that while you're a kid, you're being talked to by, you know, a lot of people, obviously, right? And so that's how you learn language. But at the same token, this is, uh, this starts your own narrative inside you. So you mm. basically begin talk to yourself constantly. And uh, this forms a certain logic, certain patterns of seeing with the world, like you, you know, connect events in a certain way that people teach you to connect through the dialogue because they connect them, you know, to you. So they basically show you how they see the world and then they, you know, make you see the world. And then uh, for you, this, uh, like, you know, by default in the beginning is the only way to see the world. And uh, the, uh, like, the distinction that Castaneda makes is, you know, they have a rational not in a way that you know it's like enlightened rational but kind of in a routine rational explanations right mm -hmm. so the uh the way people in theory perceive reality you know like nowadays it's not actually the way they perceive reality because you know people are still frightened of the dark people are still you know uh they have superstitions people still have you know, a lot of things that they're not purely rational but it's more about that they seek explanations that are mundane and that they are aren't going into the explanations that are outside of their um, like frame of you know reference, outside of their worldview. And uh, the point that Castaneda makes, and I think that is you know valid point, is that you can also connect reality in a different way. And uh, you, for instance, you know you can seek explanations that are by default not mundane. 
you can see connections uh you can seek connections by the events that are not connected in terms of you know mundane worldview like you know you you like you know coincidences right essentially mm -hmm. so the things that we know are coincidences and they're not connected in the rational or mundane kind of view they like nothing says that they aren't actually intrinsically connected like again right i'm not advocating that they are i'm just saying that one can uh have a worldview in which they are sure. and that worldview will allow you to see certain other things and will allow you to you know will empower you or might empower you to do certain things like you know pursue certain goals um like you know i don't know you are it will it can be basically used to your advantage that's what i'm saying and so shifting between those worldviews makes in my understanding makes you stronger than if you're just stuck in one of those sure so when, i mean when the term rational is used it, yeah just to clarify it's not about you know formal rational um like formal processes of reasoning it's more like rationalizing things you know like always having to go for for something that is is explicable in some sort of simple way and i think that the process that he's describing is is you know the enculturation of of kids you know we certainly learn our worldviews from those around us and and certainly they are constructed from language i mean i think one of the things that's striking about Castaneda, about a lot of philosophy, really, and in including when you go very cross-cultural with your approach to philosophy, you can find very, very similar things. You know, you can find similar things in 20th century child psychology, like Piaget, and you can find the same kind of stuff in, in Nagarjuna uh, from, you know, second century after Jesus in India. And, you know, Castaneda fits very much in with, with that sort of pattern as well. You know, I don't think that, you know, he's got, a, he's got a reputation for being really weird and out there. And I think that there is a particular way that he frames things and a particular context that he puts things into. And, of course, he invents his own vocabulary and all of that. But I think really the, the content is very similar to a lot of other philosophy and very mappable onto that i kind of get the impression that i think of him as a, a little bit like uh a, a taoist writer like Zhuangzi or something in that he he's a lot of it's ridiculous and kind of irrelevant and i think that part of that and you may disagree with that but i think part of it is specifically to break this model of the world because he presents a lot of things that cannot be rationally analyzed and i mean they are put in there as part of the narrative structure of the um of the books uh specifically to to resist any kind of rational thing and, if, and you know the, the character of castaneda the narrator is always completely baffled by these really bizarre things that don juan is doing and these sort of demonstrations of this you know magical power that don juan seems to possess that castaneda can't understand and you know don juan is always kind of mocking him for for being too caught up in words and so i think that those bizarre and inexplicable things that continually happen in the books um you know in the first books they're more to do with with psychedelics obviously and then in ixtlan um there's a specific uh you know distancing from that 
um, because maybe Castaneda thought that yeah. in some way framing everything within the psychedelics was kind of cheapening it or something because people might say, oh, well, that's just an effect of a drug. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the whole but, point is that it's distancing or breaking people out of that everyday, you know, yeah. verbal construct. Yeah. The characteristic thing, uh, the one of you know, the characteristic scenes there would be a uh, moment when Don Juan and Castaneda are looking at it, uh, like in the desert, they see something, right? Mm. And at first, Castaneda thinks that it's some kind of a weird creature, like feathered, you know, like some kind of a big feathered creature, maybe, you know, kind of a griffinish looking thing. And he feels as if, you know, the creature is dying and he's looking at it and he's, you know, baffled by this, you know, uh, creature. But then suddenly when he readjusts the view, he understands that this is a branch with leaves. Sure. And so this, you know, we're just like leaves, you know, like a branch that's lying on the ground and, the, you know, the uh, leaves are being moved by the wind. And then he laughs, and then Castaneda says, oh, Don Juan says that you basically, you know, you're stupid because you just fail such a good opportunity to break free. <laughs> and uh, this is, I think, this is the key thing, right? So it's never, I mean, uh, like a lot of people who like or dislike Castaneda, they think that he portrays the real events. Mm -hmm. They think that what he's saying is that the basically, you know, kind of the world is magical in the new age way. Like, you know, science, you know, it doesn't understand the world because the world is so much more. But it's not so much about that. It's more about the inside of your understanding. Mm. The kind of, you know, he doesn't really care in a lot of cases. And I think, you know, we should not really about the outside world. Like the description of the outside, like, the you know, the, uh, the talk is about the description of the world, the description that exists in yourself. Mm. And what that description allows you to do and what that description allows you to see. And his point is not that, uh, I mean, partially it is, but it's not the key point. That there are all the different kinds of shit that we don't see in the world because we're so caught up in our mundane way of seeing the world. He's more saying that the uh, things that you see, they are more the way you expect them to see that then what they actually are mm. and uh, by you know doing all those exercises they're kind of similar to meditation in a way like you know um and i like mm -hmm. i know for sure that when you're you know studying art like you know as in uh drawing art like right not that you're studying other people's art even though that probably you know, applies as well. You learn to see things in a different way. Mm. Like you learn to see, you know, shadows as blocks. You learn to see color as blocks. While when you are just indoctrinated into the mundane way of seeing things, you see them as, you know, a whole. You see the object as a three-dimensional object. You don't see shades of color on it. And when you go through, you know, this kind of exercises, whether through, you know, learning how to paint or whether, you know, meditation or whether, you know, trying to apply Donawanian techniques or psychedelics, anything, then you will see how your world becomes richer because you start to see a lot of details that are there. And that allows you to, you know, notice a lot of things that you previously haven't noticed, you know, for instance, you know, human behavior, like you will be able to decode human behavior in a much better way, just, you know, for an example, because you're becoming less, can, like your, I mean, using your terminology, your, you know, theory of the reality becomes less restrained. Mm. And so 
you kind of, you know, allow more information to go in and inform that theory. And that just makes you, makes you stronger, you know, makes you altogether more apt to do things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think it's similar to, to meditation so much as it is, it's really describing the same process. And I think that, you know, many Buddhist philosophers and many philosophers of, of you know, all eras and all cultures have described essentially the same kind of thing. You know, I, I, I think of it as being very similar to the concept of emptiness in in the Madhyamaka school of Buddhism, or maybe just in Buddhism in general, is and and you know you can you could talk about Maya um, <laughs> as well. You know, Maya being the world that we see, which is you know overlain with this theoretical you know pre-interpretation. You know, as things come to us, we are interpreting them. We're overlaying them with concepts, with words. And, and emptiness, you know, recognizing emptiness is about, again, getting into that state of not-self through meditation where you are specifically distancing yourself or existing from outside that theoretical construct that normally everything is, is filtered through. Um, so I think, you know, I like this kind of thing. It's... You know, it's how I understand philosophy, and some, to some extent, I think it's it's unavoidable because I think that a lot of cognition is analogical. But I think you know, Castaneda is very understandable in the same way, uh, or it maps onto the same set of concepts as, say, you know, ancient Buddhist philosophy or Taoist philosophy or Karl Popper. You know, all observations are theory laden. You know, Popper is saying exactly the same thing. You know, he is saying that everything that comes in is overlain with something. I mean, he's kind of saying, of course, and he's, this is supposed to be, uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be normative, but it's supposed to be educational um, or didactic for scientists that there is no such thing as a non-theory-laden observation. It's exactly the same as Kant saying that, you know, we have access only to phenomenal reality, not noumenal reality. Uh, you know, Wittgenstein says very similar things. Like, uh, so many um, very smart people have come to this same point through different techniques of, you know, contemplation, meditation, introspection, maybe using psychedelics, whatever it might be. And, you know, I like, I like to refer to this kind of thing as coherence, as you know, or you could say you could call it congruence or whatever, when these core insights of different philosophical systems map onto each other. And for me, that's kind of a truth signal. You know, the way they all, and especially when they are so distant from each other and not very closely, you know, connected. Uh, of course, some of those examples that I gave were very closely connected and some less so. Uh, and, you know, things like Castaneda, we have no idea what he was reading in order to, to come up with, you know, his system. He may well have been reading a lot of Buddhist philosophy or he could have been reading Popper, like who knows. But, mm -hmm. you know, I like the way things map onto each other in this sense, although that can open us up to the question of whether, you know, having any kind of technique of searching for truth any way of mapping one set of words onto another. I mean, what I'm trying to do when I do that kind of thing 
is I'm trying to map the concept space that is beneath the words. So in a sense, I'm looking at the specific, you know, I look at Castaneda's description of doing and not doing. And I, you know, I, I read that, but then I try to go beneath those words and I see, oh, is that somewhat similar to self and not self or whatever it might be? So I'm trying to map this concept space that is pre-verbal, but there's obviously a way in which, and, you know, you've pointed this out and, and many people have, you know, it's been pointed out, but you, you do still end up mapping things verbally in some way like if we want to talk about these things at all rather than just having the experience like if you want to talk about the experience of not self that's fundamentally an experience of escaping from words and escaping from um, those conceptual maps of things and if you want to talk about it you're going to have to you know you're going to have to label it as not self or or the experience of emptiness or or not doing or whatever it might be and in some sense we're always caught back up in that cycle so i very very much very strongly agree that you've got to get outside that as much as you can but i it's just an interesting paradox that whenever you try and talk and communication ultimately is the most potent form of learning that we have, you know, and we can we can get outside that and we can augment it and we can have this, you know, incredible experiences that can't be translated into words. But the reasons human the reason humans have achieved so much is because of this ability to then, you know, recode things back into words and bring them back. And, you know, there's a possibility that most people who've experienced not self or emptiness or not doing or whatever would never have got there in the first place without the words. So it's just an interesting, you know, feedback cycle. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, completely true without like reading Castaneda, you can't, you know, do things that Castaneda prescribes unless you discover them yourself by accident, I guess. Mm. Uh, so, I, think, I mean, the same goes for, you know, any tradition of meditation sure. because it's being brought through words, obviously. So that's, you know, obviously, I mean, that's very, very true. <laughs> I should remember not to use the word obviously that many times. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the trick, though, is to, uh, like, understand that, you know, you have a word-constructed reality. And when you try, when you're perceiving reality through words, when you, you know, looking at, I don't know, your apartment and you see, as I'm looking now, and you see things, but you don't actually see them. You mm -hmm. see your verbal constructions. You're like, oh, this is a picture. Oh, this is a glass. Oh, this is a door. So your first immediate response is that that augmented reality, you know, that, um, overlay on reality that are, you know, your verbal understanding. And I believe that, maybe, you know, wrongly, that a lot of people, they never stop their uh, inner narrative. They never stop mm -hmm. the dialogue. Well, stop because the you world, have to as go, Castaneda huh? says, right? Stop the world, as Castaneda says, right? I mean, that's yeah. really what he's talking about. He says, stopping the world. Uh, like st stopping, you know, the uh, description of the world, stopping, you know, coding the world into words. And because, uh, like, why believe so? Because, you know, it's it takes an effort and it takes training to go out just, you know, the same way as, you know, most people have never trained themselves to be, you know, adept, I don't know, running or, you know, whatever, fighting, you know, with karate or whatever. 
right? So because it takes training, it takes, you know, time to master that, and then it takes effort and dedication, desire to have it actually stopped. So, uh, but, uh, so I would think that, you know, like, I mean, I've, I haven't talked with all the people in the world, obviously not even close, but I have talked to some. And some of those people, you know, they were, uh, maybe they were just weird, maybe they were not usual people, but those people were saying to me that they uh, don't even believe that you can think not in words, that you mm-hmm. can perceive world not in words. So for them, the idea that you can perceive things, you know, or think about things, not in words, were alien. Mm. And this is, um, like, alarming to me, because that means that uh, people, I mean, if they are true, maybe, you know, they have a, uh, just like, they don't want to introspect, maybe they were lying, whatever the case. But if what they were saying is actually true to them, that means that those guys, they don't have, uh, access to pre-processed reality. That means that, you know, if they come up with a certain decision, it always comes up within a certain framework. Mm. If they think about something, it is always thought within certain framework. So they are always, in, in, in terms of their thinking, indoctrinated into the consensus of reality. And that is, you know, scary for myself because this is not freedom. That means that you're not free to think of the world yourself. That means you can only understand the world with the consensus that you form with others. And this is like really, you know, would be very unhappy to me if I realized. I mean, obviously we're all like that to some extent, right? But the, like, the fight, you know, to get out of this is, I guess, very valid because, it, you know, it allows you to, you know, see things closely to what they are, I guess, then, you know. Mm. But I think, I mean, I think many things about what you've just said, I think one important thing is that, you know, maybe you can get out of it temporarily, as we just discussed, you know, you can use your experiences that are outside this normal uh, way of, you know, processing the world through verbal constructs, you can use them to then inform your behavior when you go back into that normal way of processing things, like when you're communicating with people. But maybe it's also only possible as a matter of degree, you know, so we, we often imagine when we have, when we go into a deep meditative state or, or whatever equivalent state you want to talk about, we imagine that we've escaped from this, you know, theory building process or this theoretical overlay of the world completely. And I think that that might be a mistake. I think that, I mean, we can talk about predictive error minimization, you know, the predictive brain, Bayesian brain, those sorts of theories in cognitive science. And I think they have a lot to recommend them. And they're essentially saying that the, the, process of constructing consciousness or really constructing percepts you know that we perceive the world through essentially a theory of the world intrinsically and maybe when we have you know really intense meditative experiences or intense psychedelic experiences you know and people start seeing things breaking down into you know geometric patterns and you know when you're 
your perception is basically really perturbed and almost to a pathological extent, uh, possibly a way that would be non-functional if you were if you became stuck in in that state. You know, it can be very enlightening to have those sorts of experiences, but there are probably good reasons why we have evolved to perceive the world the way that we do. And, you know, one thing that um, I remember Don Juan says something, you know, uh, Castaneda is holding a pebble and Don Juan says something about, you know, you perceive that pebble in the way that you do because you know the sorts of things that you can do with a pebble. I mean, that's exactly again, you know, Bayesian brain, or you find things like that in in, um, in phenomenology, like in Merleau-Ponty and things like that. But it's, it's, very, it's very core in cognitive science these days that, you know, we perceive objects as sets of affordances. So affordances is being a term introduced by Gibson um, in, in cognitive science um, or in psychology. Um, we, our actual percepts are indeed laden with affordances. You know, I see a cup and I don't, you know, I see it as something I can drink out of or something I can grasp or or whatever. And so that is this layer of theory. You know, I don't see it as it is in a completely empty way. I mean, I can, I can, I can meditate and I can get closer to that. But generally speaking, I couldn't exist as an organism. I couldn't move through the world if I was not perceiving affordances. And ultimately, the function of consciousness, the reason we're having this experience, is so that we can perceive affordances. And so maybe all we're doing, well, not all we're doing, it's not an insignificant thing that we're doing, but what we're actually doing is we are perturbing the function of consciousness when we meditate, when we um, take psychedelics or whatever it might be. We're perturbing that function of consciousness in interesting ways that then lets us um, analyze the function of consciousness, basically. It brings that function to the fore and we say, ah, yes, I normally perceive the world through all these theoretical constructs. And it's just that language is the most obvious because it's the most superficial, but also in some way that, you know, this incredibly rich way that we, we perceive the world. But even if you were thinking without language... Um, and, you know, again, maybe many people do that, but they don't really understand how to express that. Or when you talk to them in language and try to tease that out, they, you know, they haven't encountered the right language in order to talk about thinking without language because they haven't read the right texts. You know, I mean, there's all that interesting, um, you know, way that these conceptual structures are enmeshed through language. But even when you get outside that, it's not that you are generally experiencing the world in a completely pre-conceptual way. It's just pre-language. So you've stripped away that otherwise very dominant layer of concepts. And now you're just in a different layer of, of concepts. Whether they should be called concepts or not is, you know, an open discussion. But they are yeah. concepts by analogy. You know, they are theories by analogy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. In a way that, you know, you perceive a form as a form, like when you see a cube, you see a cube. Mm. It haven't been taught that, you know, this is the way to see a cube yeah. uh, through work. It's just the way your perception evolved to see, you know, forms. Like, you know, binocular vision, you are just like the mapping, you know, of the shades and, you know, lights and just forms onto you in your brain. And then you're like, oh, that's a cube. But you 
can deconstruct it. Like, you know, through the conscious effort, you can deconstruct it. You mm. can make yourself see, the, it takes a lot of effort, for me at least, uh, to see a, a three-dimensional object flat. Like, mm. to see that as, you know, painted in the, on the flat surface, as in, like, painted on air. One of those, you know, exercises that I like to do from time to time, which really fucks with the brain, is when you see a letter, uh, like, you know, big um, printed letter, or as in, like, you know, whatever, A, B, C, whatever it is, or, or a word, and you look at it and you try to see the color. You try to uh, remove the meaning of it. Mm. You try not to see, you know, V. You try to see a, you know, two lines mm. it's really hard like you know everything in your brain just protests with well, it you know that um, just, you know that lumosity you, game yeah like, there's, there's a game on lumosity where i find that that's exactly what you have to do in order to be very successful at the game because it's that one i can't remember what it's called now and maybe this will be completely unhelpful for people who haven't played lumosity but you know it flashes up things and it asks whether you know the color on the right, say, matches the word on the left. Yeah. And and it and, yeah. and it mixes it mixes them up. So sometimes the colours match but the word doesn't match and you know you get all these false positives. But if you can split your processing so that you're only perceiving the colour on one side, but you, you might be perceiving the word on the other side, um, then you know, I found when I've done really well at that game, it's because I've been able to lock into the, that only seeing the color but not decoding the meeting state. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's similar. But uh, yeah, like I would I would say that you know when it's static, it's somewhat harder because mm. your brain keeps readjusting because your mm. brain is you know sure. essentially seeking seeking for meaning, yeah. and it's like what's the meaning there, yeah. and it's keep assembling the letter or a word as a meaningful thing and it's like aha this is what it means and so you have to kind of you know keep relaxing it so that it doesn't do it and it's it's interesting to ask because you know you suddenly see uh the uh like the words the letters in you know in the way they are and the way they're written and they're different right they feel different they look really different i guess you know that's how the uh, typographers see the world like you know people who make fonts i think they would be able to see that in much better way yeah uh, and i think that you know this is just one of the exercises right mm. that i do to kind of you know get myself away from the um that kind of you know maya-ish yeah. thing um what i think it helps it helps to realize when the problems or your suffering is entirely in the you know realm of the uh, framework so when you can uh, remove basically your problems by changing a, a framework mm. so you know when it's like it's especially about the you know problems with the human world and you know most of our lives are you know we live in the human world and a lot of those problems you know are small petty conflicts you know our small you know successes or non-second failures like a lot of those stuff is just entirely within the framework mm. if you remove yourself from that framework you no longer suffer you change the way you know you change the like you know you no longer feel guilt or you no longer feel ashamed or you no longer feel that you know so and so is angry with you because all like w it matters only within the framework that we construct as the you know socium 
as we construct as you know civilization. Mm. But this is a consensus reality. If you choose to disagree with that consensus reality, it has no power over you. And I think it's like I mean again, it's not about you know breaking free of it and writing a book. It's mm. about having a tool that allows you to be free from it when you want to be free from it. Sure. I mean, again, you can do that sort of exercise that you're talking about with, with letters, with anything. I mean, the cube uh, example that you gave, and obviously that was very salient to painting or drawing, but it's the same kind of exercise that you can have. And sometimes it's very spontaneous, or it has been for me. You know, I suddenly look at some everyday object. I have a very vivid memory of when I was a child looking at the, um, the seatbelt or the... I can't actually even remember the word for it. You know, the bit that the seatbelt clips into um, in the car, you know, getting in the car and seeing the thing there and just looking at it and saying, wow, this is a really bizarre and completely alien object, you know, like suddenly seeing it without an awareness of, you know, its function and, and what it was and the fact that, it, you know, it's a very everyday banal object. You know, another example would be, you know, doing some form of open monitoring meditation when in the middle of a crowd. And that's actually one of my favorite places to do this kind of meditation when all the words and all the snippets of conversation, it just becomes this, this you know, really stimulating um, and I think quite, you know, aesthetically pleasing, you know, bubbling of, it's almost like motion or something, you know, it, it's it's sound obviously, but it's there are no words coming to you or anything. There's just this seething, writhing heterophony or cacophony of, um, mm -hmm. of noises, just completely divorced. But of course, just I guess it's just making the same point again, and you 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 gestured at it as well. But you know, you could wake up one morning, or you know, maybe it happens while you're awake. But you could have had a, a minor stroke, uh, and suddenly this is exactly the kind of thing you'll be experiencing. You know, you won't be able to understand words anymore. You know, like you'll look at things and all you'll see is these shapes and patterns, but you won't be able to read anymore. Or face blindness would be a, would be a classic, you know, example where suddenly you're unable now to construct faces into affordances into things that you can recognize and all faces essentially look the same to you because they are not integrated in some way so i just think it's interesting how a lot of these exercises which are very valuable for for helping you to see that you know things are not always exactly as they seem uh, are also things that if you were stuck in that state it would be very much pathological and then there's this other thing where you were saying, uh, you know, seeing through these issues, which are purely human issues or issues of society, you know, allows you to, to break free of them. And again, I guess that's a relative thing because you, you end up in a position where you, you start to question how free of them you would really want to be. Again, it's very healthy to... Um, to be able to see through that kind of thing but a lot of us want to be able to do that and still maintain our ambitions you know you and i both work at universities we're both yeah. within the system you know we see the value 
even though a lot of the time it may drive us crazy as well. We see the value of being within certain kinds of systems. And then there's also the fact that you can you can try and break away from a system. You can say this is all, you know, BS. You can, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out, uh, and then end up in jail or something like that. You know, like the system, the system continues to exist, you know. And it can affect you in ways that can be quite dramatic. And then your your ability to to meditate or your ability to distance yourself from circumstances will be sorely tested if you find yourself um, running afoul of the system in some way that you know causes the system to to you know bite you. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, all all those things are are. Yeah, I just fascinating things. And so I think when when people start using language where they say things like, you know, those problems aren't real, man, you know, like, that's just all part of your verbal construct, man. That's just the system. The system's not real. It's like, yeah, it is real. And it can have very, very profound impacts on you because of its reality. So just because, just because you can look at something from a different angle and you can get outside it, and that can be profoundly therapeutic, doesn't mean that you have reduced that thing that you have got outside of to the point of, of unreality. And I think that's where you know it starts to get into very difficult philosophical ground, um, which you and I, you know, discuss quite frequently and don't always agree on but it's the you know the ultimate sort of you know what is real what is part of your ontology um and how how would you go about defining what is real you know how would you have could you possibly have a a a rule that you could use you know a rule of thumb to judge the reality of things, you know, are concepts real or because we can get outside them, does that mean that they're not real or etc.? Yeah, I mean, uh, before we get into this, I just want to <laughs> go back to the ambition stuff. Yeah. And like, in, actually, in Castaneda, he understands it quite well, you know, mm -hmm. uh, later on, uh, there are two, uh, like, there is Don Juan and there is a friend of Don Juan's. And Don Juan is kind of a mustard and intention. And the guy, the other guy, mastered desire. And basically, you know, they could, you know, desire anything they want to desire. And then they make, can make themselves, you know, a unbending intention to do that thing. But because they mastered it, they never wanted to do done yeah. anything. Because they're like, you know, we can, but, you know, be exactly because they don't spontaneously arise, mm. they never i know gone to do anything <laughs> and this is like you know pretty lucid in a way yeah. uh but uh, my my point is more about that you know breaking free from that consensus reality for a moment at least understanding you know where it ends understanding the borders of it and understanding that there are other ways to see reality and other ways to assemble the world uh it allows you to be more efficient within that consensus reality as well because it, um, you are less acceptable for it to drain you. You are less acceptable for it to, you know, take uh, your mental energy from you. Yeah. And that allows you to pursue what you want to pursue uh, without, you know, looking uh, everywhere. You know, where is the, what's the people thinking about it? How am I framing into this big thing? Like, you can still understand it. Mm. It's just... It is disconnected from your emotional attachment should you wish to disconnect Absolutely. it. So 
you kind of, you know, it's more like it basically, I think what it allows you to do is allows you to see uh, uh, society as a game, which it is. Mm. And uh, it allows you to see the rules as they are, as the rules of the game. So you, the idea is not to say, hey, you know, the rules are just bullshit. Let's mm. make different rules. So, you know, because they're basically made up by people, we should play a different game. Like, this is not the point. The point is still to play a game. You know, if you're playing chess, you're perfectly aware that the rules were placed there by humans. Mm. But that doesn't mean that you start making weird moves because, you know, hey, other people made the rules, they're not for me, right? So you, like, the rules still apply if you want to play the game, if you want to get, you know, something that this game provides you. If you want to get shelter, money, recognition, fame, whatever, iPhones, they are all prizes in the game. You have to play the game. But... When you be, uh, become um, aware that the game is a game, that it's not intrinsic, that the, wor the world doesn't have to be like that, it allows you to be, you know, more um, apt at playing the game. It allows you to see which way to go. It allows you to choose better between your options because you see them as options in the game. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think I think the the key point that you make there is that you you have energy because you can take a break from the game because you realize yeah. yeah i mean this is not the intrinsic structure of of my existence i can actually take a breather right now for 10 minutes or for a week or or, or whatever you know i can go on a holiday and you know it'll still be there when i come back to it but i am not <laughs> constantly mired in it and i think absolutely correct that you you end up with a, a massive surplus of well, not necessarily a surplus but you have extra energy therefore and i mean that just fits in very well with the sort of cognitive load theory which is that a lot of this stuff when we are and it also fits in with my aphorism of last week which you didn't entirely agree with but you know my favorite attend to everything react to nothing um dictum you instead of being tied up with all that stuff and with therefore having this also rapid task shifting effect as you you jump from you know thought process to thought process you know constantly without any breaks you actually you can occupy a position outside that chaos um and you can be observing it all not getting tied up in it and therefore not paying the costs of reacting to everything or the costs really of rapid task shifting because you are taking a a broader perspective which encompasses all of this stuff but is in in itself you know stable and still and calm and i think that is the fundamental inside of of mindfulness meditation uh which again i think is recapitulated in 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 different terminology and with different frameworks all over the place but it is that idea of just stepping off to the side you know i just step out of this whirlpool of self uh and it doesn't you know necessarily disappear when i do that but i am not so caught up in it i observe it and then i can make and much more efficient and effective decisions and far less costly decisions uh in terms of the amount of energy that i have to apply to them because i'm seeing the bigger picture now um yeah so, so yeah no I, I very much agree with that do you want to talk about magic at all 
Yeah, yeah, that's what like that's what I'm saying. Let's uh, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Let's like bring it for the last, you know, however, ten-ish, fifteen-ish uh, minutes yeah. that we have. Let's bring it to magic in a way that, um, like in the way that you know, it's uh, the science is concerned, I guess, because we can talk and like magic is a very broad subject. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, uh, the um, basically how it connects here is that uh, you know. People in science tend to think that the scientific explanation of the time that they're living, so mm-hmm. their current scientific explanation, is the reality as it is, is the end, and like we have explained it, we see clearly. And I think, you know, if people, scientists in particular, if they, you know, kind of a learn that you know how to see the world not as they're taught you know to see the world when they learn to see the world like assemble it or at least disassemble it you know the parts they become less uh hang up onto the explanation that they're given and so it's not to say that you know not don't believe in the explanation it's more like take an explanation as it is so the um uh, like, you know, for instance, the idea of coincidences, right? So we have, you know, uh, a theoretical framework that says, you know, a lot of things are just coincidental. So if you thought of of a person and then that person calls you, it is coincidence. And the tr- trick here is that it remains to be proven that there are no connection there. The, the fact that we don't see a connection, the fact that we don't know uh, any form of you know energy or whatever interaction that can form that connection doesn't mean that there are no there is no connection it, it like again i'm not saying that believe in coincidences i'm you know i'm making a subtle point here that you should not fight with people who say that there are coincidences even though i mean as in the coincidences are meaningful because you don't have theoretical framework for that and uh basically you know you are, as a scientist, you know, you should try to work with the world in the kind of a more open way, right? You apply your theory, you apply your explanations, you you know, study whatever you're studying. But when, uh, like, don't rely on your theoretical framework in everything and say, this is the way the world is. There are no magic, you know, nobody has ever proven, you know, magic, like... Nobody freaking tested, you know, Merlin when he was there. Like, there were no signs there. We have no idea. Maybe he was, you know, maybe he was able to fly. The fact that we don't have Merlin now, you know, doesn't say that, you know, he wasn't a great magician. Well, probably he wasn't, but, you know, you get my point. Like, we haven't studied, you know, enough instances of people doing magic, you know, to say, hey, you know, there is no such a thing as magic. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there are a lot of things that could be said to that. I think that the the primary point that you're making is actually said a lot by scientists and certainly by philosophers of science. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, it's it's completely uh, encapsulated in say Karl Popper's you know assertion that all knowledge is conjectural and these days you'll hear physicists continually you know using the examples of lord kelvin or using um examples that you know people saying it will be impossible to split the atom and then you know 24 hours later someone's done it and you know 
all that kind of stuff is is very much part of it may not be part of the way you know I, I don't like talking about scientists or, or 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 any of these things as though they are some monolithic group or like a discrete category yeah. of people but it may not be part of the way that the majority of people talk and operate most of the time but it is part of the 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 you know dominant not just best but dominant philosophy of science in fact it's intrinsic to the founding founding values of modern science to be honest you know nullius in verba take nobody's word for it really is a a, a message of of and that's the the motto of the royal society right um it, it's a message mm-hmm. of skepticism and it's a message of it's it's basically the same thing again as Popper. All knowledge is conjectural, you know. So our model of the world may change. So I think interestingly, people are probably more aware of that now than they ever have been in some way, right? Like in terms of the history of science, anyway. Let's just keep it to that. Even though again, it's a foundational value of science. I think we hear so many people talking about it. This, you know. But we also have more knowledge of reality, and I'm just using that word in a non-loaded sense for the moment, um, now than we've ever had before. You know, we have things like the standard model of particle physics, you know, and it's, it's complete now, you know, with the Higgs boson, we've detected all of those particles, and there are no, um, you know... Uh, well, I wouldn't say there are no observable phenomena that we can't explain. There are heaps at, at some, some levels. But in terms of the basic um, mechanics of, of physics, we have a pretty complete model. And, of course, people will use that to say uh, there's no room in here now for, you know, special additional forces or, you know, non-physical yeah. components of... But they, yeah, But they can one of those forces, right? And it's uh, like, you know... Think about the fact that physics as the is the very you know basic layer of reality, and only now we have a quote unquote complete you know theory about it. Like this is the most basic stuff, you know. Like if you go a level up, that means that you know how much do we know there. And if we're talking about the what you know humans can do, because you know magic would be if it is if it exists an intrinsically you know a human activity. If we're talking about you know the uh, like, you know, abilities of human psyche, you know, like, we have no idea, you know, can you alter, you know, reality via your thoughts? I, I bet, you know, we can, you know, if we think we're theoretical physicists for like an hour, we can come up with a plausible idea how, you know, el- electrons in your brain get entangled with the electrons outside and then they, you know, they interact and you create, I don't know, a fireball for the sake of argument. So, <laughs> I mean, look, look, like, we, what about that? We don't have a framework that you can build it from. We have, you know, physics is really magical shit. Yeah. It's more about that we haven't studied reality even to say whether, you know, the phenomena like is, you know, studyable, whether there is something there that, you know, uh, like people claim because we have not investigated all the claims because we as scientists don't care. It's the same as like, you know, uh, I mean, we care to do a bit, but it's, you know, like, I would make a comparison with the, you know, investigation into how guns affect, you know, gun deaths in America, right? They now have, you know, close to no studies on that for the last 20 years. And people saying, hey, you know, we don't know whether guns actually do anything. 
it's like yeah because you're not studying it mm. you know same here because we're not studying it because we're like oh this is just bullshit you know you can't affect your uh you know outside world you can't will something into happening okay well, have we ever studied it to the extent that we can say that yes you can't you can or you know you can't no we have not so okay. it's not about the lack of you know uh <laughs> substance it's more about lack of us even going there even looking at it because it's not hold on like you know I'll finish this point that it's not so yeah, much about on. we haven't studied this part of human interactions i have studied others no it's more like the way the amount of our knowledge on what humans are capable of in terms of everything in terms of you know how they can change their heart pressure will have you know rate anything all things concerned, you know, human life, human interactions, human complexity, human actions are very unstudied. So... Yeah. You remind me of Russell Brand sometimes, I've got to say, because you're like spewing out so many different things and it's like where to start actually responding to what you're saying. <laughs> okay. You know, you know, I would need to be making notes. Um, in, in the first place, yes, you can, you can modify reality with your thoughts. That's what humans do. That's why humans are the most successful species on the planet. And that's why any, you know, that's why reductionism ultimately doesn't work. And I am the guy in our discussion who is always pointing this out and always hammering this home. And you are usually pushing back on that. So this is why entities at the, you know, the smallest entities, quarks, strings, whatever you think they are, are not what's really, really real. Because there are all kinds of entities, there are all kinds of um, structures made out of huge numbers of quarks or whatever, which have properties that quarks as individuals don't have. And they are massively causally potent, they have huge effects on reality. And thoughts are of that kind. So there's no question that thoughts can modify reality in my view, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that's as a, as a, as a first point. Um, and I can't even remember necessarily all the other points that were rising in my mind as you were saying this. But I mean, in terms of having studied uh, whether people can you know, alter reality in ways that we might think of are magic. I mean, there has been, as you know, there has been work done on that. Maybe there hasn't been as much as there could be, and maybe there will be more of that done in the past. But I think the, the general opinion or the general consensus is that for I guess for for a lot of reasons because there are a lot of of older texts or a lot of you know modern fantastical texts including fantasy literature which portray quote unquote magic in ways that seem so I don't know they're so fanciful that they sort of seem to discredit the entire phenomenon. And in a lot of cases, people want to use the term magic or miracle specifically to mean something that is a schism in the laws of physics. Now, in more, more recently, again, I guess, um, in the New Age community, people have leapt upon features of the quantum level that seem in some way 
to be similar, like, you know, non-locality and things like that, and yes, entanglement and, um, you know, teleportation, um, things existing in two places at the same time, uh, you know, superpositions of states, you know, all these sorts of things, which are, you know, they're, they seem, they are magical in some sense, sure. They also feed into people's, well, the argument is that they feed into people's confirmation bias because people want to believe. And we know that there is there are a lot of motivations. So there's a lot of motivated reasoning going on as to why people would want to believe in psychic powers or life after death and all sorts of things that people have always really wanted to believe in. I'm not saying that there's no possibility that these things are true, but one of the reasons that we treat them with a certain degree of scepticism is because of the very um, well-characterised or seemingly obvious effect of motivated reasoning and you know confirmation bias and things like this. And perhaps because of the people who, as soon as they see something that has even a whiff, like some quantum effect of, um, it, of magic about it, they want to leap in and they want to say that this exists at all these other levels as well. But see, one of the points about not adopting a fully reductionist view of the world is the idea that more is different. You see, what we, we definitely know is that large groups of entities, um, of, you know, of smaller entities, groups, things that have emergent properties, um, well, I just sort of <laughs> jumped ahead. What I'm saying is that things, groups of things, networks of things have properties that the, their constituents do not have. They have emergent properties. More is different. And this goes in both ways in the sense that they gain properties that individual quarks don't have or individual particles don't have, but they also lose properties that individual quarks or particles have. Um, so we can't have our cake and eat it too because we would like for their to you know to have we'd like to have certainly new properties because we don't want to be um, tied into some kind of determinism in which the particles are the only level that matters and and what we want and what we think and what we do has no effect on the course of history nobody really wants that um, but we can't have that um, I mean, we can't disavow that by saying more is different, but then try and cling on to things that would be really cool to have. Like it would be really cool to, you know, say, oh, well, the atoms in, in or the particles in my brain can become entangled with the particles in another yeah. brain. And, you know, so yeah. I think yeah, no, man. Look, I'm not saying that, you know, we should, you know, try to explain, you know, the telekinesis. What I'm saying is that when we see a telekinesis, we should not, you know, first try maybe to think maybe there is, maybe it is, you know, a possible thing to have. Not go, like, you know, the default scientific mode is to say, you know, this is just bullshit, and you're trying to explain the uh, phenomena that you see using, you know, previous knowledge. Well, hang on, and, can, I, I mean, can I jump in just for a second? Because I just want to highlight that there are a couple of principles of reasoning that have been very successful for us and therefore draw a lot of weight. And, you know, Occam's 
Razor is one of them, yeah. but abductive reasoning. So the principle that we argue for the simplest possible solution rather than jump. And again, this exists in part to avoid the the risk or the influence yeah. of confirmation bias or whatever. So try to find... Yeah, yeah like I, I don't understand why they're in place. And I mean, there are no valid tools to have and valid you know, tools to use. It's just my point is not that we should not use them. My point is that we should not be certain yeah. that the world is the way we think. So when you see, you know, when you're in like whatever, 17th century or whatever, was 18th century, you're shown a platypus, don't just say bites, you know, a beaver with a duck. I mean, maybe it is a beaver with a duck bill stitched to it. And maybe, you know, this is the best you can come up with, right? But don't be certain that it is. For sure. So when you see, when you see a person moving, you know, a you know, whatever, matchbox with his mind, seemingly, then you, you know, can say, hey, you know, he's just using magnets or whatever, and you can investigate that. But don't be certain that your entirely, you know, made-up explanation for this particular phenomena, because you have never studied this particular phenomena. So your explanation is made up by default, whether it is for platypus, whether it is for, you know, a person doing magic tricks, if they're indeed like, you know, magic tricks is in their stage magic, right? So your explanation is made up. It's made up of words. It's made up from within your, you know, word verbal reality. So it is by default wrong, whether it correctly depicts it or not, it doesn't matter in this case. You should not be you know, certain that this is the way things are because they're not. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as I've said, and as we've agreed, that is a foundational principle of science. That is a commonality between, you know, ancient Buddhist philosophy and Castaneda. That is a very, very core principle, you know, and Popper just happens yeah. to have said it very nicely. All knowledge is conjectural. This is why I believe fallibilism is, in fact, the most rational of uh, epistemological frameworks. And it's, in, you know, it could be fallibilism with a capital F as, you know, embodied by or as codified by C.S. Peirce and, you know, refined by Popper or whatever. Or it could be, you know, fallibilism with a small f as instantiated in, you know, schools of skepticism with a big S and also in you know certain branches of Buddhist philosophy like Madhyamaka, and also in Taoism, and also in Castaneda, and also in Wittgenstein, and, and whatever. I think that that is obviously the most rational way to view the world, is that you're really not certain about anything. Uh, you know, you, you have a set of priors, again, because cognition is fundamentally Bayesian, seemingly, I mean, at least that's a good current theory, and I guess a big part of this discussion also is the way that even though any given theory is wrong, there are still best theories of the time. And so, yes, we shouldn't be certain that they are correct, but we should operate as though they are because they are the best available explanation. So you've got to have a yeah. better explanation than the best available explanation in order to transcend that. Otherwise, you treat that as provisionally true. It's always in the back of your mind that there is going to be a better explanation or that there may well be a better explanation. And of course, if you're working specifically in a field, say you're investigating... Mm -hmm evolutionary theory or whatever it might be 
you want to be at that cutting edge where you are looking at things that do challenge the current paradigm. Um, yes, but in most of the areas of your life, you simply aren't an expert. You know, in most of the things that you interact with, you're not at that cutting edge. And thus, in order to avoid, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, you tacitly accept the explanations of the people with the most experience who've investigated the area most rigorously, who are the experts of the now, even though you know that they are, in fact, wrong. And I think, you know, this can be a difficult position to find yourself in. Like, if you are specifically studying epistemology and what you are you know, realizing more and more is that really nobody has any idea what they're talking about, then you have to continually remind yourself of the fact that, again, to use the, the two truths model in Buddhism, even though, you know, the two truths are the ultimate truth and the conventional truth, or maybe it should be the conventional truth and the ultimate truth. And when you study very deeply, I, you study epistemology, you study knowledge very deeply. To me, I just feel totally inexorably pushed into the same kind of position that um, the Madhyamaka school of, of Buddhist philosophy arrived at, which is that, you know, the ultimate truth is that the only thing there is is conventional truth, basically, right? <laughs> um, because the ultimate truth is emptiness. Um, you're, pushed, yeah. you're pushed in that direction. But you have to be continually reminding yourself that there still is this thing as conventional truth. Like instead of becoming a nihilist or an abject skeptic, um, you, you do have to remember that there's this conventional truth. There are standards of evidence. There are processes of reasoning. There are all these sorts of things. And so we have, you know, we have best available explanations. They're not 100% correct. Um, they don't include some of the things currently that we might really like them to include and there may be very good reasons why those things are excluded and of course we can't now go into details of why certain magical phenomena are not part of the current scientific worldview and, and that would be a very very long conversation in and of itself and it would have you know historical components it would have his, uh, philosophical baggage but it would also have you know much more you know uh, boldly rational or empirical empirically motivated um, components for why those things aren't there. But yeah, a lot of things that we might hope are real, like I'd like to live forever, you know, like, <laughs> you know, a lot of things that we might hope are real are currently left out of our best available explanations of reality. And in order to challenge those, we'd have to do an incredible amount of work. And people have been motivated to do that work for a long time. And some of that work has been yeah. done. And unfortunately, it's been fruitless. But we still preserve well, but, the possibility. But also, you know, yeah, but there is also not enough work done in a lot of those cases. Totally. Like, you know, you will have only a handful of studies on tarot cards. Like, they're literally, you know, less than 10. Like, you can't say that they don't predict future because you haven't studied them properly. Mm. Less than 10 studies. But That's what if, just not there. What if they did? They probably... Hang they on. probably don't, man. They probably yeah. don't predict, right? But the the fact is, you can't scientifically state that because less than ten studies, that's nothing. Sure, but so, what if what if they did so, predict I mean, the future in a way that was non-magical? Like, how would you feel about that? Because I would, I would be perfect. I would be perfectly fine. So just, I'm not like you know. The idea is not so much of there being magic per se. The idea is 
more about you know people recognizing that there is still a huge opportunity for the world to be completely different to the world to the way we see it and i mean i completely basically agree with you know uh your uh, like statement i guess uh so that's just you know it's not that we should change the way we approach science in on paper it's more that we should change the way we approach world and science on the emotional level as in you know we should just be less um you know certain about things we know i guess that's it i mean you voiced it pretty perfectly <laughs> so i guess you know like i probably we should probably stop here yeah i just want to i just want to say go for another i just want to say what i meant yeah and we will stop but what i meant about them influencing the future or predicting the future in a non-magical way you know i i think what could happen with a lot of that sort of research and i would love to see that research being done is it would show that there is a basis for people's belief that this predicts the future, but that it's not the mechanism that, that people had leapt to originally, that it was in some way, you know, defying the laws of, like it was genuine precognition or something like that. It might be more like giving someone a tarot reading has a causal influence on the way they behave subsequent to the experience of having that tarot reading. So it's, it's kind of like a, a, a type of psychotherapy or it's a type of... Um, you know, almost a hypnotic process or it's seeding a certain potential future and increasing its likelihood. And, you know, and that kind of stuff would be very interesting to research. And to me, I mean, again, just because of abductive reasoning, I guess, and because of all the other things that we've talked about, it seems much more likely, like it does seem likely to me that there are interesting effects that these sorts of techniques would have on the future but that if we dug down into them, we would find that those effects were mediated by, by normal physics, by normal psychology, by normal whatever, which would in no way cheapen them. You see, I guess one of the problems is that people really want, seem to, some people, really want things to not be bounded by normal physics or not be bounded. They want things to actually form a schism with the way we understand reality. Uh, and, I, you know, I would also say that the likelihood that reality... I mean, there are ways in which reality is certainly completely unlike the way we think it is or the way we generally operate in it as. But the idea that, say, our model of physics, like the standard model of particle physics, is completely wrong... Um, so reality is in some, I would say like interpretations of that, like interpretations of quantum mechanics and, you know, its effect on cosmology and, and all these kinds of things. A lot of that stuff, um, some of that stuff at least has to be way off because a lot of it is very deeply contradictory. Um, but that some of the mechanics and things like that are correct seems to have a very, very high probability. There is such a thing as a growth of human knowledge, in my opinion, which means that we are now closer in some sense to understanding the way reality is than we ever have been before. So it's it's a bit of a disanalogy to say, as some people say, that, oh, well, you know, back in, you know, 
the ancient Greeks thought that they understood what reality was like and, mm -hmm. and they turned out to be wrong or whatever. You know, I do think we know more now than we, we have before. And actually, some of what we know validates what some of those ancient Greeks thought, like Heraclitus, who I'm a big fan of. Yes, change. Everything is change. Everything is in flux. Constant change, constant flux. But anyway, I digress. Mm -hmm.